Thank you. Um, it's great to be here to talk to you about um, compassion and justice. Um, so for anybody that doesn't know me, I am um, married to Debbie. We've got three kids. They're quite grown up these days, 18, 15 and 11. And um, we used to live in Belfast and then in 2006 uh, we were in Belfast City Vineyard, which Alan um, is part of, and we moved from Belfast to Portadown or Lurgan to plant um, Upper Band Vineyard Church. And it was probably just after that, that as we thought about church planting and how to engage with our community, that I started to get involved in community development work because I realised that to, to see a community or a town change and transform, you have to be involved in it directly. And uh, so in 2008, um, I started a little food bank as part of our church. And in 2012, morphed that into an area-wide food bank pulling in and most of the churches in our wider area to help feed about uh, a population of about 90,000. So our food bank feeds between three and 4,000 people um, a year. I also sit on various committees within um, ABC Council around um, community development and anti-poverty and I am co-lead on an anti-poverty strategic outcome for community planning in the ABC area. We're now part of Emmanuel Church and we have two churches one in Lurgan and one in Portadown, and a vision to see um, our whole citywide area transformed. Um, and so what I want to say to you a couple of things today is I want to try and provide a bit of context. And there's going to be a little bit of, not theory, but just um, a supposed perspective in here. But we are in the middle of massive societal change. And so the current cost of living crisis is it's just a little blip in the middle of that and so I think we need to start thinking about at least a whole decade, this particular decade that we're in the middle of, <clears throat> as being a time when there's a lot of change happening and we have to try and figure it out. So if you like, Richie Sunak's throwing a bit of money at, at heating costs is not the solution that our communities need. In fact, they deserve something a lot better than that. Um, and change is being played out at a worldwide stage and we have to understand why these changes are happening and what we can do about them. So, rather, and I could talk about some of the stuff that's happening around the world and, and there's, I think there is a, a decline into tribalism which is really, really dangerous where people are actually, if you take America first, it would be a classic example of a, of a perspective of if we could just look after our own and make sure that we are all safe and okay, then that's all we can really do. I think the war actually in Russia is, is a lot to do with that as well. There's a lot of other complex issues going on there. But that can be one of our responses to um, a level of change in our societies that we don't know what to do with. Let's just pull tightly around ourselves, our own community, our own family, and look after ourselves. But the kingdom, the gospel, calls us always to reach out and to think about other people. And um, one of the problems about the way that we approach things is that when we look out there in our communities, we see a level of need that we can hardly get our heads around. Um, if you think about, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's a little triangle. At the bottom, there's basic needs like food and shelter. And at the top of the triangle, it's this fancy term, self-actualization. Uh, and the view is that a, that a modern developed society would get to the point where we have gone beyond our basic needs and we're thinking about how we're going to thrive in life. And yet so many people in our communities are thinking literally 
about that survival level. Do I have enough money for rent? Do you have enough money for food? How am I gonna live to the next paycheck or the next benefit income? And it's sad that we're in that situation. And so I want to talk today briefly about three things beginning with C, and they are control, complexity, and community. And the first one is this, is control. And it all starts with the 1940s and a man called Lord Beveridge. And this might not seem that relevant, but it's really, really important. In, before the 1940s, when we had a national health service and a welfare system, we, we had help, okay? And when you look back at church history, what you see is that hospitals and schools and orphanages were very often started by churches and other organizations. And that happened to an extent where there was a little bit of an infrastructure around, but nobody had actually thought, I wonder could we pull this all together and do something that would affect the entire society? And along came this guy called Beveridge, and he wrote a report, and he basically talked about the opportunity to have a welfare system that was free at the point of use. And his ideas were so radical and so transformational that nobody would take them seriously. And no politician would stake their career on it because politicians work off a four-year cycle. So it was going to take a lot longer than that to implement this system. And so what he did was he wrote a report. And he took that report and he published it and he got it into the hands of the masses. And that report talked about what we now live in the good of, the welfare system, the NHS. And actually, he, it became like a kind of evangelist and rogue preacher. And he traveled around the whole of the UK telling people about this wonderful system that could help people who were, were sick, that could look after the vulnerable. Um, and a groundswell of opinion rose up and people said, this is what we need. This is what we want. We need a welfare system. We need a national health service. And the government eventually took it seriously. But the problem, so this is my first point around control. The problem with any system that provides help and support for others is that when you have limited resources and high demand, some kind of gatekeeping has to be in place. Someone has to decide who gets help, when, and how much. And somebody has the power to make that decision. And the word power here is really, really important. Many people in our community spend their lives on the wrong end of a power relationship with the state, where they're constantly asking for things and stuff and hoping that somebody at the other end of a phone, at the other end of a form or an email is going to say, yes, you can have this level of support, or no, you can't. And one of the problems that we face in the church is that when we see gaps in the provision of our health service or our welfare system, we very often respond to those gaps and respond to those needs in the same way, in the same mode as the system or the service that we view as being failing. And so we then set up our own gatekeeping processes and we have our forms and we have our questions and we decide based on the limited resources that we have who gets and who doesn't. And what that does is it leaves people that we're trying to help on the wrong end of a power relationship yet again. And I believe there is a better way forward, that there's something different, that we can think differently about how we help people. And that the effective stewarding of power is something that Jesus does in a way that radically changes people. 
And so with humility, there has to be a way for us to come alongside people and see their lives change and transform. But we're willing to give up the power and the control in that relationship. And, and we as Christians find that quite difficult at times. And, and part of that is because we believe ourselves to be holders of truth. And when you believe yourself to be a holder of truth, you're not that keen to let other people um, affect that or, or affect how our message comes across or what we, we say. We're not as willing to enter into equal relationships with others because we are the holders of the truth. You're going to bring it to those that don't know it. And I think that that mindset can sometimes stop us from bringing the right solutions in the right way to people who are struggling. So my second um, C is complexity. We now live in a very complex environment where there are a few simple solutions. And when Beveridge designed the welfare system, our welfare system was designed to deal with relatively simple issues. If someone was sick, they either died or got better. And so that's the way the system worked. Uh, and, and health provision was done on that basis. The average person lived 12 years in retirement in the 1940s and the 1950s. There weren't that many people struggling with very long-term health conditions that need managed. There weren't as many people struggling with very long-term mental health issues that need managed. Um, and our world has become so much more complex. And so complexity requires us to think differently, to come up with better solutions and different solutions to the problems in our world. And so I, I sit on a committee um, with the ABC Council, and one of the big um, things that we're trying to do is just to pull together and understand who is doing what, when and why, and how can they help people. Because when you're in need, the strange thing is, unless you know where to go to get help and how to ask, you can't access help. Now, if you're in a, a place of low mental health, if you're in a place of sickness, how do you have the ability to go and ask for help and to engage with the different services? How do you present your argument? How do you ask for help? It becomes very, very difficult for people. And so people find themselves in a cycle of struggling, but afraid to ask for help. And in fact, so many people that are here on benefits are so worried about the little that they have being taken away from them that they never ask for more because they think that they might lose the little thing that they have. And, and so one of the reasons why there's so many unclaimed benefits in the system is because people are afraid of that system. That system is not easy to navigate. And so we need to have solutions that deal with complexity. And my third C is community. And what, the interesting thing about the welfare state and what we don't always realize, because this is the water that we swim in, we're not always aware of it, is that when we see somebody in our community who is struggling and in need, one of our first thoughts is, what's the government doing about that? Who's helping that person? There must be some system, there must be some service that will help them. And we don't always ask the question, how can I help them? What can I do? What can our community around that person do? 
And so when Lord Beveridge wrote his, he wrote three reports, and by the time he wrote his third report, he wrote of the system that he had helped to put in place, the welfare system and the National Health Service, he said, I have made a fundamental mistake. And that mistake is the power of community to fix itself. And so we, the welfare system treats us as individuals, as individual units of measurement and individual units of support. And it robs communities of the power to help themselves because before there was a welfare system, there was a community. And the community looked out for each other. And the community looked at the weaknesses in it and the people who were struggling in it and, and actually thought, this is our problem. If somebody in my community is hurting, it's my issue. It's not the state's issue necessarily to sort it out. And, and so these things, these unintended consequences of the welfare system leave us in a place of actually either do we continue to fill, out the, fill in the gaps in the system and the gaps when things are broken or do we start to think radically differently? And so I think we're at the place almost within society that we need another beverage. We need another person who looks at the status quo and goes, this isn't working anymore. These systems aren't working anymore. There has to be a better way. There has to be a different way. We have limited resources and we're trying to manage them in a way that is, is ineffective. Um, unfortunately, in this country, for lots of different reasons, we see that in terms of things like hospital waiting lists and, and all sorts of other lack of service provision. But as Christians, we have some of the answers. We have some of the answers in terms of the power of community. We have some of the answers in terms of the wisdom of heaven to come up with complex answers to complex solutions. And a couple of wee thoughts about that. There's a massive opportunity for the church to re-engage with its own value system. You see, we say things like we're good at community. And we are good at community in church. And we are good at community with fellow Christians. But if we were truly good with community, it would look like something and feel like something to those who aren't part of, of the church. Um, and we think that we're good at helping other people. And, and we are. But very often it's on our terms. We decide what help we're going to give, who we're going to help, and what that looks like. One of the key opportunities for the church is to actually try and figure out how we engage with the people who need help and ask them what help they want, what it should look like, and how we can help them. So we don't actually do that as often as we should. Um, I think too many Christians have a Messiah complex. You see, we're supposed to look like Jesus, right? But we're not called to be Messiahs. We're not necessarily called to be the rescuers all of the time. And there's something within us wants to be the Messiah, the rescuer, the person that goes and, and somebody's in need and we come and we give them the stuff that they need and, and we help them. And um, I actually think that our mode should be more what Jesus called us to do, to go and make disciples. It should be a coming alongside and a walking with and a journeying with people to see their lives change, not just a rescue and lifting out. And I think that's what um, Desmond Tutu meant when, when he gave this little example. And he said, there, there's a point that comes 
when we need to stop pulling people out of the river and we need to go upstream and find out where they're falling in in the first place. And I think increasingly the church needs to stop pulling people out of the river. And we need to go upstream and we need to find out why problems are happening. We need to ask the people when we lift them out of the river why they were in the river in the first place and go up there and try and figure out why it shouldn't happen again and again and again. Because I've run a food bank for the last 10 years and I'm still feeding hungry people every single day. And there comes a point where you figure out that cannot continue. We need to do something different. We need to do something better. I'm going to pass over to Alan and he's a vet. I'm going to pass over to a vet and she's going to come and talk to you uh, next. And then Alan's going to come and then there'll be a time for questions. And I hope that there will be lots because I think I have some ideas and I have some solutions, but I think that most of the solutions that we have come from community, come from people like this, come from rooms like this, where people have diverse perspectives and, and unique perspectives on, on how we solve some of these problems. have such a full room so thank you for showing up that's so good um, thank you Chris um, Chris and I were chatting on the phone the other day and um, I just find it fascinating his his reading and his idea on stats and um, what he's just shared with you is very close to my heart and something that I'm trying to figure out and uh, work out in, in, in practice um, I was just sitting there and I just felt um, the Holy Spirit prompt to just uh, stop for a moment and to just ask you a couple of questions. Um, I spend most of my time uh, sitting with people over coffee and um, if I could have a coffee with each of you, um, I would look at each of you and just wonder what Jesus was doing in your life and why you were sitting in this room and why he has your heart pointed towards justice and compassion. And I really feel like the Father would encourage you that um, he loves that you're sitting in that seat right now with that heart. And, um, you know, what are the solutions that the church can bring? And at the end of the day, the church is made up of each of you guys. And um, each of you carries God's spirit, his wisdom, and an open heart towards him. And with that, the church gets to be the church in community. So let's just stop for a moment and just um, invite God's Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Speak to us afresh about compassion and justice. What is it that breaks your heart, God? And we say yes again to you afresh as we do each day so that we can partner with you for your kingdom and God above all we pray God let your kingdom come and let your will be done here as it is in heaven I'm just uh, I plan to just tell you a couple of stories I think stories um, 
allow God to speak to you in um, his own way. And so I just want to tell you a couple of stories from community. Before I do, if I was having a coffee with you, I'd introduce myself well, so let me not forget to do that. Um, my name is Yvette. I'm 45, married to Mark, and I have two teenage kids. And um, I work at Bagan uh, Valley Vineyard Church in Lisbon. But before you all try and guess my accent, I shall tell you what it is. So if, the, if we have a question and answer session at the end of anything, that's the first question. What is that accent? So I'll put you out of your misery. It is a mixture of living in my primary school years in South Africa and then my teenage years in the Isle of Man. Everyone's like, yes, I got that. The other people are going, I thought it was Australia. Don't worry, everybody does. This is totally uninteresting. But anyway, South Africa, Isle of Man, Northern Ireland in three equal parts. There you go. So I cannot pick up your lovely accent. I'm sorry about that. Um, but a diverse uh, culture, having lived around the world, has made me incredibly interested in people, incredibly reliant on the Father, because my parents pulled me out of a country and I had only Jesus to talk to for a while. Um, love Jesus and love looking at individual people and asking Jesus, what's the journey you have them on? What are you doing in their life? Where's your healing and your wholeness for them? Thank you that you're doing the same in me at exactly the same time as you're healing others. And I give my life to see your kingdom come. First story um, to tell you, um, when we planted Agamari Vineyard Church, a policeman came to us and said, hey, the Vineyard Church, you must be all singing, all dancing, like Coleraine Vineyard, come and work with us in the police. And I was like, what? And then I was like, that's too much of a, a, a good offer to give up. Uh, so uh, we started working with this police officer in the community and they went like this. He tried not to arrest a load of mums and uh, we uh, then came in with the soft church and tried to help them integrate into community. And we started to look at that whole concept of how uh, maybe health and wholeness could come through being held or placed in the church in some way. But we just had to learn that, the rough and ready way. And uh, so we did that and soon realized that we could hold people in community, invite them into friendship, tell them about Jesus. Uh, we could bring the miraculous and the supernatural into that, so pray with them and see healing. We could talk about the truth of scripture and bring that along and help to disciple them and help them to practice that. But that was going to take a long journey. But a lot of people were living with trauma, um, immediate mental health needs, um, and we didn't have the answer to those things. And yet some people within wider churches would, because you have professionals, but in a new church plant and there's about 10 people, you just know immediately that you're lacking all the skills that you need. So I said to the father, like, what do we do with this? And some wise people were around us at the time, and we quickly learned, well, the best way for the church in our context to do that um, was to look at what assets were already in the community to find those and to partner with them. And so that's been a model that we have learned to, to follow in our community. And it's not rocket science, and if you come here for rocket science, this is not it. But learning to find out what statutory and voluntary agencies are doing really well in your community, 
and then offering for the church to serve those and to signpost to those well has probably been the fundamental learning that we've had. And probably the best way that we've had to do that is to serve those agencies as well as we could and to find out so much about them that when people come and ask us for support, we know immediately that it's not the church that has the solution, but it's these agencies that our church now, that we've grown, are volunteering in, are working in, are employed in, or just understood and spend time with those. And those agencies have become friends with our church and have been so connected to our church that we work together in partnership. And from that, we've also formed a friendship group around bringing our church leaders in our community together in friendship so that they partner together. And then we model this together where the agencies, voluntary, statutory, and churches are stakeholders working in partnership alongside each other and sharing experience, resources, and friendship with each other in such a way now that 10 years on we usually know who to call if i sit in a pastoral situation with someone i'll be able to see quite quickly who maybe the two or three agencies in the city are that can partner and support them and then all the church is left to do is to hold them within that support of that professional care and we've become like the mother or the father where people would come to us, but we also hold them within um, the resources and the assets that are in our community. I'll give you one example um, of that. Um, we are, well, we have been working with uh, a person who's grown up in the foster care system and his first uh, doorway to us um, was really, it felt really traumatic, um, really difficult for us to engage with him. There was, um, he's an addict. It's, we were, when we met him, we, we were like, I'm not really sure if we have anything here. This is far too, too complex for us. So we ended up, um, his really only connection with us was, um, asking repetitively for food bank vouchers and coming for uh, food vouchers and then um, just constant phone calls to the church office and um, constant phone calls every day asking for food and different things and then um, his relationship with us got really quite complex and messy and we all got ourselves into a bit of a pickle with it and um, ended up just going to the father and saying, you know, we can't just keep responding to trauma, giving out food parcels, there must be something we can do here. And realized actually that that piece of work that we've done with the churches and the partnering, that nobody was looking at it from the top perspective. Uh, there was eight agencies who were just responding to his trauma and his asks for food parcels, and everybody was running in all kinds of directions. So all I did was I invited all of those eight agencies to come for coffee around a table and find out who his key worker was in the primary statutory agency as mental health key worker. And then with his permission and with the gentleman's full permission and knowledge of all the agencies, so it took a bit of work, 
to get his permission to know that each of these agencies would be meeting and to explain to them how, if we all worked together, it would be for your strength. And with his permission, we met. And in that meeting, we were able to narrow down. And what we actually did was, instead of increasing his care, we reduced it right down and all agreed that for a short period of time, he would only uh, correspond and speak to his key mental health worker and that that person would then be the activist for the agencies. And then within that, we decided again, going back to the gentleman and asking his permission what the one thing was he needed to provide instead of trying to get all of his care sorted out across eight agencies all at once, what was the one thing and actually some really hard things happened for him. We made a decision with him and for him in some ways to completely stop all of his food parcels, that he wouldn't be given any food and that he would be empowered in his home to start to manage for himself through financial um, advice and support and through his mental health key worker. And there's a lot more to, to that and through some therapy. And we are three months into that. And one of the things that's engaged in there is cat money. He's doing the cat money course, which a lot of you will know of. And we've seen a real change in his peace, his countenance, and his understanding of how he engages with others for support. He slowed down. He's saying things like, I know you can't work with me unless I keep focused. And his mental health is improving because the wider agencies are not running around and responding to his trauma, but rather are almost acting like a parent figure with consistency and everybody saying the same thing and the same language and working together. And it leaves it open as well for those agencies to have more time to work with others. There's less trauma in those statutory and voluntary workers. We're checking in with each other. We're affirming each other this community in those agencies as well. And that's just one example of the church saying, hey, can we maybe help to work from a place of peace and clarity? So when a church works like that, I found that we're actually blessing social workers and health workers, and they are actually getting some benefit from that as well. So, I wanted to tell you those two stories, and I think that's good for time, but I think that was, I hope that was helpful to you as a way of just modeling um, one way, that's the way our church is learning to work at the moment. I think it's really important to say that we are very, very much learning as a church, but just taking the time to just see um, a person and understand their needs and slow down on that rather than just responding um, with whatever it is trying to look at the bigger picture but most importantly I think what Andy Smith said this morning working from a place of rest and asking what is the father doing and how can I join in with that because honestly there's two stories we could respond to our city every day our cities are full of trauma full of complexity, even our own lives in helping others has <coughs> trauma and complexity. So it's really important to just say, Father, what are you doing? 
What do we join in with today? And how do we as a church build something strategically that is a model that our whole church can take on and release in their everyday lives? So one of the things that we are really big on is we have doctors and nurses and strategy agents in our church. How do we create a culture and an ethos within the church where they feel so released and supported by the church or inspired enough to know that they can partner with the church in some way? So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to hand over to Alan. Thank you, Alan. Do I need to wipe this mic? Yeah, Chris is ill. It's not a COVID thing. You guys doing all right? You got some questions? See if them up for Chris in a moment. Uh, my name's Alan, part of the team at Belfast City Vineyard for the last 14, 15 years. I've had the privilege of founding and heading up a charity in Belfast called Storehouse. I've got two teenage kids who are feigning an interest in football to avoid listening to me right now. Um, if you want to do the same, feel free. Um, Alongside Storehouse and working with the church, myself and my wife about nine years ago pioneered a little congregation of our church. We accidentally planted a church uh, called Friday Church. It's a church on a Friday. It is legal. Um, and simply looking at those that we were connecting with uh, who were vulnerable and marginalized, who weren't finding their way into our Sunday environments because, stop the recording, we're horribly middle class. And so we looked at how do we remove those barriers. Um, so that's some of what I've been up to for the last while. It's a lot of fun. But three months ago, I had the privilege of um, sharing in a funeral service for a friend. We'll call him John. It's not his real name. Um, John was part of our storehouse community and part of our Friday church community and had been for a number of years. Um, to say that John had some significant mental and physical illnesses would be an understatement. He, along, alongside those, had a history of just trauma and abuse, um, some horrendous addiction issues. He had a police rap sheet that ran well into the three figures. He was barred completely or banned temporarily from almost every uh, kind of service provider within our city. Um, and he was my friend. And uh, this is where I tell you about how we saw John get healed and restored, right? That's what you want to hear, the secrets to that. He wasn't. John, the night before he passed away, was out drinking, as he often would, and drank too much in our city centre, and the ambulance had to be called, and he ended up in hospital. And on a Friday morning, as he always did, he checked himself out against their wishes, in such a rush that he left all his belongings, and his rush was to get to outside our building because his job on a Friday was to help us set up Friday Church. And John passed away in the streets waiting for us to come and open up. And I had to phone his family. And on the phone with his dad, his dad said the line to me, it was just such a waste of a life. Such a waste of a life. And I stood a few days later at the funeral and had the privilege of saying why it wasn't a waste of life. John had incredible struggles. Did he get over them? Absolutely not. Do I wish that our systems were different? That we had partnerships with agencies that could have solved his solutions? Absolutely, and we have to fight for those things much better than we're doing right now. But 
Never once in his five years with us did we get close to even kicking him out on the day, never mind barring him or banning him. Where his family could no longer trust him with any money, I'd send him to the store on a regular basis with my debit card and PIN number to get the supplies we needed. He had a job in our place every day. Some days he came drunk, but it was stand-up drunk, so he could still brew the coffee. Some Fridays he would worship with his arms raised, utterly full of the presence of Jesus. The next week, he would suffer horrendous hallucinations and horrors because he was so drunk and he was so high. But John in our community taught us so many things. At his funeral, I got to stand and talk about the lessons that we learned from him. Lessons about unconditional love. Lessons about where religion and my inner Pharisee said it doesn't count. Lessons about what resilience looks like in love. Lessons about how to receive people completely other from ourselves. Lessons about dignity and soul feeling its worth when we treat people as they are and not as we would like them to be someday. It was not a wasted life. He had a purpose. Did he hit it all? Probably not. Neither did Moses, or Abraham, or David. If you want to pick any other names in the Bible, they didn't hit it all either. Maybe Jesus. We'll, we'll agree on Jesus. Okay. We're not that heretical. Outside of that, we don't all hit it. John didn't hit it all. But there's something in how we receive those that walk through our doors that unlocks the potential of the kingdom. Before, before any of their issues or problems are dealt with. We are none of us perfect. We are broken in many, many ways. But we still are deemed to be useful in our communities and of value. Why do we judge others differently? And one of the lessons that we've learned over 14, 15 years, and I still have to remind myself weekly, is that everybody who walks through our door has unique significance as they are right now. And you might, in your communities, not be at a place where you can begin to tackle systemic problems. We need to get there. We need to find our voice. And you might not know where to begin to partner with agencies in your city. And we need to get there. We need to do the hard work. But... Every one of you can look at whoever walks through your door and love them with the heart of Jesus. You can receive them as a gift. In Genesis 16, we find Hagar sitting in the desert. I don't know if you know her story, but we sanitize the Bible all the time. We call her Abraham's maidservant. Let's call it like it is. She was a trafficking victim. She was taken as a teenager from her home, sold into slavery, used in servitude, then used worse was raped. Then she was mistreated. Then she was kicked out into the desert. Alone, pregnant, female, no value, at the end of herself wanting to die. Doesn't get much worse than that. And God shows up. God solves all their problems, right? If you've read Genesis 16, he sends her back. But what does she say after that encounter? I have met the one who sees me. In a single encounter with God, the soul felt its worth. She was seen not as a victim, not as a problem to be solved, or an issue to be dealt with, 
but as a unique, significant human being with dignity, with hope, with a future, and in that encounter, how she's received and seen, everything changes, even though nothing changes. What if we began to see the vulnerable in our cities that way? What if we could look with the eyes of Jesus in a way that says, that allows people to know they've been seen? The poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the whatever label you want to put on it, they're not problems to be solved. They're not problems to be solved. They might have some problems, so do I. They're not problems to be solved. And the rich, and the middle class, and the upper middle class, they're not resources to be used. Isaiah 40 says that the, all the valleys will be raised, and the mountains will be lowered, and there'll be a level playing field. That's what we're aiming for. Nobody comes as a volunteer or a service user. Everybody comes as a unique, significant individual with needs to be met and something to bring to the table. And when we think about the kingdom, I think it's funny, this is called a feast. Lots of us run food banks where people are going hungry. It's a bit ironic in a bad way. But when I think about the kingdom, what's Jesus' main metaphor? A banquet, right? A feast. Not a soup kitchen where bellies get filled, but a table where everybody's bringing something and we sit down together and we receive together and we give from what is unique to us. John's the kind of guy you'd walk past in the street and felt pity for. He didn't feel pitied in our place. He brought something of life to the table. We learned from him and we gave back to him. And the soul felt his worth and the kingdom came. However big or small your communities are, that's possible. It's a heart posture. It's not a program thing. We need great programs, but that's a heart posture, and we can all do that. And for me, that's the Church of Jesus Christ. That's the Church of Jesus Christ. Chris. Brendan Donald, thank you. <clears throat> so, you may be familiar with Micah 6 verse 8 and it says he has shown you a mortal what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God and so we, we do, do need to love mercy and mercy looks like helping people at the point of need it's why, why we still need food banks why we still need service provision but justice looks like spending enough time with people to get to know them and to walk with them and to help them, to help themselves and to get the support that they need to move on and to progress in life. But it requires us to walk humbly enough to look people in the eye, not to sit behind a desk and be another service provider in their life. And so the services that we have, the National Health Service that we have, the welfare state, so much of it is so good but I believe that at this particular time and what you've heard from these stories is the power of the church in, in its intrinsic nature to hold people in community to communicate value and worth to them to journey alongside requires us to step out of the mode of service provider a lot of the time and to walk with those that we seek to help. 
I want to just encourage you if you're really interested in thinking about um, this kind of stuff. I have found it's very hard to find Christian books on this um, that, that think well. One of them is um, a book called um, Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton. And in it, he has a little oath, and I'll not read all of it. There's five or six bullet points, but I'll read you two of them. Uh, and he says um, in his oath of compassionate service, never do for the poor what they could do or what they have or could do for themselves. Never do what for someone else what they can do for themselves because you're robbing them of the opportunity to help themselves. And, and the last one is do no harm. And it's amazing just how often that when we're trying to help people, we actually harm them because we rob them of, of the opportunity to do something for themselves. We dehumanize them by the way that we provide them support. Um, above and beyond smoking, government statistics tell us that there's a bigger epidemic in our society that kills more people. And it's called loneliness. And a few years ago, um, in Westminster, they appointed, appointed a loneliness minister I remember thinking, like, is that where society has got to? That we need a minister whose job is to make sure that people aren't lonely? In, in England, one in three people over the age of 60, on a weekly basis, don't come into contact with any other human being. One in 10 people, it's a month. And loneliness is an epidemic in our society. How can that be? And when people are disconnected, they do really, really badly. And we have the power to hold people in community. And it's when we hold them in true community that solutions can rise up. But I would say that when we hold people in community, the solutions come from them as much as they come uh, from us too. And, and so it's exciting that we have something in the church to give at this time, at the level of brokenness and the level of need in our community there will never be enough resources from a monetary perspective to fix problems because a lot of the problems that we're trying to fix with money can't be fixed with money in the first place. Um, I could talk on and on, and I'm sure these guys could too, but what we'd love to do, and I know it's a big room, but we'd love to hear some questions, we'd love to hear some thoughts um, from you guys um, and, and see if we can get, get some wisdom from the room so if you do have any questions or thoughts or observations let me hear them what's the difference well, I'm trying to get my head around this I'm trying to understand something here when you're talking about the church the difference what you're trying to do what the Catholic Church has already been doing for years and they can't even keep up with the people the demand Okay, so what the difference between what we're talking about trying to do and, and maybe what other agencies yes. in the Catholic Church, St. Vincent de Paul, other agencies have tried have tried to do. question Lee um, I think one of, one of the, the problems is that, that when we're told to feed, to feed the hungry we, that's what we do uh, and so it's amazing but what, what we 
but we talk about doing stuff in other countries, like going to Africa and places like that. We very often use this little phrase, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach him how to fish and, and he'll be able to feed the whole family and for the rest of his life. And it, it's amazing that we don't use the same logic in our own communities when helping our own people. But we constantly give out. So somebody needs food, we give them food. Somebody needs furniture, we give them furniture. Somebody needs this, we give them that. And we, we actually disempower them to help themselves. And, and the person who benefits most, really, really honest, a lot of the time, the person who benefits most is the giver, not the receiver. So we need to change, we need to change that. So, you, so you're right, that level of... Yeah, and so the other thing about power is that in that dynamic that you're talking about, the power always rests again with the giver. You know, so what a, instead of giving somebody money to help them out of a situation, right, what if we loaned them money to start a business that they could then build up to, to pay their own way in, in life and empower them to go on and, and, and have a career or have a business or, or whatever? That would truly help. But the, but the thing is, we would really need to journey with them in the context of community over a long period of time to be able to make that happen. And that's what I think we can do or should do a lot more is that journeying with. It's a really good question, Lee. Thank you. Go on ahead. Um, I, I love the, what you started off talking about, and I like your analogy with healthcare. I'm a doctor, and uh, it's what the NHS is trying to do now. They're trying to push healthcare out into the community preventative medicine rather than curing, and that's what you're talking about, and I think it's the only way forward, but my issue is, from my point of view, is we're drowning in the people who are drowning, okay, and in order to switch from a model that takes it out to the community, you don't, you can't just switch that and say, we need to be looking to stop picking people who are drowning out and go and find the, the cause of that. A lot of the times we know the cause, but we don't have the resources, we don't have the ability to go and stop that while trying to deal with the massive problem of the people who are still drowning. Yeah. So I think in, in my head, so one of the reasons that the NHS's sort of perspective or their, their, their desire to do that is failing is because they're choosing to fund one or the other. Okay. Yeah. And what we need in the church as well as in healthcare and other areas of social care is we need to be able to continue picking the people who are drowning out of the river, but at, at the same time deal with the root cause. Mm. Yeah, so so just for the sake of, of the recording as well, um, so we're spending all our time just rescuing people, pulling them out of the river because there's so many people and they keep on coming and we don't necessarily have the resources to go upstream and, and deal with um, others. For a while, we need to be yeah, 100% we need, to, we need to be doing both. So um, I believe there is, is one major health creation alliance project within the National Health Service that's focused on health creation um, and the rest of it is, a, is around responding to health need. So you know, even within the National Health Service, I know that initiatives around health creation and the, the work of the PHA around health promotion is, is really, really important. So. I suppose one of the things that really strikes me about what you've just said is that in our um, in our mindsets as Christians, we don't 
very often think that health promotion and, and health and well-being is a field that we should be involved in. We, we don't kind of think that's a gospel, right? Because our gospel is so narrow. But the gospel of the kingdom, I think, takes us to the place where we've got to ask ourselves questions about how can we bring the fullness of the kingdom to our communities and that maybe the church could be one of the answers to that space. But I think in, in maybe in the, in the mode or the way that Avep has described is that when you analyze it, there are so many services and so many service providers out there. And very often the missing piece is the link piece, is it who, who can navigate the system. The navigation of even the, the service provision that is out there is very, very difficult. So, so I th- yes, I think that, that's part of, part of the, pro- the problem. But I think in terms of like w- what we need to be doing is, is, if you like, effectively stopping people getting sick, stopping people from, from falling into to the river. But I think that, that there are massive opportunities for, for church and community to do that and to do that well. Um, and, and so much of it is... Um, so when I started a food bank, I also started a community allotment. Right, because I thought the real answer to this is that we would re-engage with health and well-being, growing our own food, eating healthily, exercising, and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot harder to get people interested in that than it was in in, in food bank, because you're basically saying, you know, the way you're not sick, and you know, we know you can't afford veg and stuff, would you consider growing your own and doing this and doing that? Not interested. We're interested in sending our kids to the project, but not coming themselves. Any thoughts from you guys on, on that one? I just think Shooter's right. It's a both ends. We can't do one or the other. We can't simply tackle big systemic issues and leave people to drown. We have to do both and I think the church is uniquely positioned. Like, because we don't have the red tape and we're free to risk and we're free to feel and we're free to put our hands up and say we tried and it was wrong so we're going to try something else um, I don't know how to solve the NHS I, I wish I did but, but as an example but, but 100% I think we're too myopic we think I'm the justice person so I'm going to rage against the system but we forget that there's people and then some of us are I really love people but I can't think about this up here and it's a both and. We need to do both and we can't do one or the other. Yeah, we've partnered with CAP for many years, a brilliant organization, love them to bits. I love them.
100%. We need more. Sounds like more your field than mine, Chris. <laughs> I'm a pastor. We can pray. some really good stuff there. I think when you uh, create a model like CAP, it's easily transferable across the church. Churches know what to do with models. They can run with them. Volunteers can take them on board. We need more good models like CAP released amongst churches. Churches love a mission that's really clear and that they can run and do. And I think CAP is a really good. And may God inspire more godly men and women with solutions that are easily multipliable and transferable across the churches. I also think that uh, Tudor's hit on something really important there. I think for too long, uh, and uh, forgive me, I don't mean to sound judgmental of the church, but we respond to so much and we're less inclined to look at the church getting into preventative work. And the thing about preventative work is you invest your life into it, you see no outcomes because you've prevented it. Yeah. But I do think God's beginning to speak to us more about the church, uh, going, people going to careers, and the church putting them in places of preventative work. I sit on a board, Early Intervention Lisbon, simply to learn how the church can be involved in preventative work as well as response work. And I think we have the beauty and the freedom uh, to do both. And then as we close and as we um, go off, we are in a unique environment where God can speak to you this weekend. Just allow him to speak to you. I came before I came here having a sitting by a tent, ended up speaking to a doctor who's in our church. And he said, I would just love to get the doctors in our church together to talk about this one issue in the NHS. And I said, why have you not done that? And he said, well, I kind of thought maybe you needed a bit of permission. What if you didn't need permission to allow God to speak to you in your career and to just bring change through the church? Maybe your pastor didn't know that they had to give you permission to bring that solution that God's planted in your life through your skill set and through your experience. So may God 
give you full permission with the Holy Spirit speak to each of you to bring the solutions in the places that you find yourselves and may God bless you in that and give you courage and wisdom to be released and may the church be released and may God's kingdom come and his will be done. Sometimes I think sometimes, just to be working in the streets a lot in our mass, uh, sometimes we give too much. And don't get me wrong or burn me going out. But I, I work with I, I had four guys in my soup kitchen this week and they're they're on twelve hundred pound a month. And the government gives them that and, and the free house. And as I say, don't kick me for this year, but they get two hundred pounds for heating. And and they didn't spend on heating, they spent it on, on drugs and alcohol. I think sometimes the system is wrong because they give it out too much and they need to probably you know, give it to an oil company and, and say, listen, you have to get oil, you can't just go and drink the, the fuel on the bank, you know, and that kind of stuff. And sometimes we, I have a, a, a young brother who died on the four down street at 45, he just dropped dead outside the chemist, but he's got too much money. <coughs> so I'm talking from uh, experience, not just from football, but there is people who indeed, yes, because you know I work in every day too. But sometimes you, you give somebody 40 pound, 50 pound groceries a week, and they're they're dependent on that, and they're saying themselves, if I need to spend that 50 pound on groceries next week, I get groceries here. So it's, it's trying to trying to get the system to go into a, a place where like just don't have money out left, right, and centre. Just try try to and I I, I, I fully believe relationship. And as the lady said down there, I don't know her name, so you know build a relationship up with Christ in them and, and build those relationships up. Listen, we're not going to save all those people we're given to. But start to invest in the people that you're with. Start to invest in the people that you're saying that you wish. And put your input into them. Because we if there's fifty years sitting here now and you're investing one, you're investing five hundred in a week or five hundred in a month. So I think that kind of way would be a good way. Yeah, Ian, Ian, I think in, in some cases you're right. And again, that's an unintended consequence of the welfare system is that at times it's given given some people too much. Uh, and we've seen a lot of complexities around that where people genuinely don't know what to do with with things. I think there's there's a piece of work actually around um, the, the, from an education perspective around citizenship and the ability for people to be healthy citizens and how they think about themselves in the context of society that is really key but I think again community starts to hold people really really well um, so one way last thing I'll just say and then we'll officially finish if you want to stay around and ask questions that's fine is that when we think about bringing solutions to our communities and when we ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and for strategy the other thing that we need to do is to ask the community for its wisdom and ask the community for its strategy and to involve the people that we are helping in the process of designing solutions. And that requires a humility from us to kind of go to them and say, do you want help? What kind of help would it look like? How can you help us design it? Involve them in the process more and more and be willing to them. And I see as Christians, we don't want them to mess up our thing or to maybe change our values slightly or to maybe say something that we don't agree with. You know, if you truly embed yourself in the local community, then you have to identify with that community. So therefore you have to be willing as well at times to be misunderstood by people from outside that community. Because you need to truly walk alongside 
people and journey with them. And, and so rather than going from our place of safety and security in the church to the community, sorting out something over here and coming back to our place of safety, we need to learn to really, truly walk with people in relationship where we are part of the community and they see us as part of the community. And that requires us to spend a little bit less time in the church and a lot more time outside of it um, in order to do it. But thank you so much for, for joining us. We're going to be around for a while if you want to ask questions um, or disagree or have a chat or come up with ideas. Love to have a chat with you all. Thank you very much.